Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. On today's episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Aline Kamakian, who joined us from her hometown in Beirut, Lebanon. She's a renowned restaurateur, entrepreneur, author, and founder of Myrig. Myrig, which means mother in Armenian, Aline's native language, is one of Beirut's most beloved restaurants specializing in authentic Armenian cuisine, which she founded in 2003. As you may know, the city of Beirut was hit with a massive explosion on August 4th of this year that decimated the city, causing at least 190 deaths, 6,500 injuries, and destroying half of the city's homes and businesses, which left 300,000 people homeless. Located in the heart of Beirut, just 500 meters away from the blast, Aline found herself in the middle of an unthinkable situation. With a restaurant completely destroyed, team members severely wounded, and no time to even think about the devastation, she has become a hero in her hometown as she works to rebuild the homes of her employees that were lost and feeding 2,500 meals a day to those in need. In this episode, we learn about Aline's upbringing and background, how she became interested in food, building a successful hospitality franchise spanning several countries, and the work she's doing now to rebuild all that was lost as a result of the explosion. Her story is truly one of passion, perseverance, and resilience, and we hope you take away as much as we did during our conversation with Aline. Here we go. I grew up in Beirut. I am the black sheep of my family, basically. Uh, I have two older brothers and then me after nine years. So uh, I was uh, very close with my father and um, I was a little bit very um, out of the box. I, I literally black sheep of the family. Every time I was fired from the school, I was fired from the scouts, everything. Uh, my main, I, I've, I was five years old when the war in Lebanon started. So um, I had my shares at the beginning uh, because we were living in an area where Muslims were more dominant, Christians attacked, and vice versa. So my father took us, and uh, we went to his parents' house, which was in Rabie. Back then, Rabie was uh, literally, there was only three houses. Okay? It was a small, it was out of Beirut, okay, in the suburban uh, no one heard about it, uh, nothing, only three houses. And I was the only uh, female, let's say, uh, kid there. We were around five, and I was the only female. And there, it was a lot of my character got built. It was mountain. I, I used to love nature. I love nature, so I used to play all day out. And I was always playing war game with the boys. <clears throat> So um, I was very tough and uh, around uh, everything around food started with my father. I was around 13 years old. Uh, my mom did an operation of uh, varicose, vari- varice and she couldn't back then. It was like she, she has to sleep nine months. Uh, so I was with my aunt handling the, the house cooking. And every time I used to do something, my father was very happy. And he, he used to encourage me, even though it was sometimes uneatable, but never downloaded, downgraded me. Until the most important part was when I did the subarek. One day I came home before mom did the operation. She was doing uh, the subarek and I started to help. 
Can you explain what a Subareg is? So we have a lot of people that aren't Armenians or Lebanese. So it's one of my favorite meals. So explain to us what Subareg is. The Subareg is a very old Armenian specialty. is uh, based on uh, egg dough, very, very thinly open, as almost transparent, uh, uh, a diameter of uh, 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 almost a meter. It has to be uh, big. And it's boiled and then cold water and then dry the dough. And then you put it like a lasagna. And then there is three kinds of cheese, Armenian cheese inside with a little bit parsley, red pepper powder. And some, some people put uh, onion in it. And then another six layers of dough. And it's cooked over the oven. So it's around seven hours of work. Literally seven hours work and... Uh, uh, you have to have a nice hands, good, uh, powerful hands. So when I did this, and at night my mom put my, in front of my father the subarek, uh, he was so proud. And I always wanted to have a motorcycle, and it was forbidden. Armenian community, a woman, 13 years old woman, to, to, to drive a motorcycle, it's out of questions. So I pop up the question, I said, Papa, I want a motorcycle. He was so happy and so proud he couldn't say no. He didn't say yes, but he said, okay, what we'll do is you're going to have a ride, but you're not, buy, you're not going to buy a motorcycle. So this is how I knew that every time I wanted something, it's by cooking a dish that I would get it. And my mom did the operation, so I was always cooking, getting notes, and this is where everything got built about the food. I always liked to cook. I used to cook with him. And uh, he used to tell me one day I would open a restaurant and tell the world about the, Ar the Armenian cuisine. I will tell my friends. And our house was every time whoever he was, whoever was in his office at night, he used to bring them with. Night means five o'clock, six o'clock. Due to war, we used to close everything early. Ali, what year is this around, just for reference? We were about um, 80, um, 80s. So it was past the Lebanese Civil War. It was in the Lebanese Civil War. During. Yeah. So um, my mom uh, is used to my father because my father never went, never came home alone. So if you open my mom's fridge, you will see everything. The small kofta, the small manta, everything is ready for five minutes. You will have a, a whole dress up, a whole table. So I learned this from my mom. I lost my father. I was 17 years old. So his dream of opening a restaurant is, was all in my mind. I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but what did, what did your parents do? What was their profession? My father, my father uh, was a tailor. So he used to uh, do a men's... Um, uh, suits. Yeah, men's suits. He, uh, he started very early because he, his parents were uh, the survivor of genocide. And he was the eldest of the house, so he started uh, at seven years old to work at a tailor man, and he learned how to do that. Uh, so, and my mother was a house uh, housewife. So, so my father, uh, my father's dream to have a restaurant, and I vowed to myself that uh, I will realize his dream. But I never knew that I will be the one who would open. I thought I will be investor in a restaurant. And when I lost my father, uh, my mom was so afraid that I'm a very strong woman, so this lady will never get married. So I have to find a husband. 
now and finish this deal. <laughs> so I refused to get married and I made her sign a paper that if she one more time opened her mouth about getting married and leaving the house. <laughs> I started to sell insurance door to door because I never wanted to take anything from, uh, from anyone. Although my brothers are uh, never let me need something, you know, but I was very intent to do whatever I want to do. And I wanted to be financially independent to, for me, because independence is all about financial independence. Once you are financially independent, you take the decision that you want. Uh, so I started to sell door-to-door -door insurance. And this is how I have my insurance brokerage firm till now. I'm one of uh, the first 10 insurance brokers in, of Lebanon. I'm known for um, especially hotels and special cases. So uh, and I started like door-to-door -door and then started to pay my uh, university. Uh, I started uh, marketing and then financial. I, thought I did two masters. And while selling uh, insurance, I opened my. Did you go to Did you go to AUB? No, I went to a French uh, university, UAG. Uh, in in France or in Lebanon? No, no, in Lebanon. I started in Lebanon during uh, when and whenever there was a lot of war. I used to come. Uh, my brother lives in LA. I used to come, stay there for two three months. I did some war activities. I was with the army as a volunteer. Uh, and then my my brother told me, "Up, oh, come in, get out of there." Uh, Do you? I, so, I know it might be. If it's traumatic, I don't want you to talk about it. But what was your experience like? You know, in the army. I don't know. I have heard of you know, you know, coming from a Lebanese Armenian family myself. I know there were women that would enlist in the army. Um, I could be wrong, but that's what I've heard. What was that like? I mean. Did you get drafted? Was it by choice? What was that whole situation like? No, it was the it was the war of uh, between Lebanon and Syria, independence war. I wasn't drafted. I was. It was by choice. We were all from the university volunteering, and everybody went there. Uh, it was very patriotic and things. But back then, we knew very little about uh, manipulating and uh, false. Uh, uh, false leading uh, speeches and everything. So um, it was nice at the beginning because it was very patriotic and it was very bad at the end uh, because of what happened. Uh, a lot of my friends died and uh, it, was, it wasn't a period of, uh, let's say, uh, something to want to remember. It's, uh, it was really bad. At the end, it was really bad. And then I, I got out. Uh, I lost nine of my uh, university friends uh, during that war. And I was lucky to survive. Actually, I'm, I think I ha I'm like a cat. It's, it's my third blast, fourth war, and I'm still alive. So I don't know why. I think God <laughs> doesn't want me. You mentioned your father's dream of opening up a restaurant. I'm curious, during the 80s in Lebanon where you were, were there a good amount of female restaurateurs and business owners or was it not something that was very common and something that you know, would be difficult for you to do at the time? When I decided to open my, my reek, the first one who fought me was my, my mom uh, saying, uh, we don't have women coming late at night. So that explained to you uh, 
there was when I opened my reek, uh, there was no other female having restaurant. Now there is. We are like, I think eight or ten. Uh, but back then, no, there wasn't. And it was really two things struggled me because one was everybody laughed at me that I'm doing an Armenian restaurant. What are you gonna do, Sujuk Basterma sandwich place? This was the everything they knew about the Armenian cuisine. And my mom was selling each pitas, you know, like Bospov uh, Kofta. What are you gonna serve? You know, like. Uh, as long as there is no shrimps and lobsters and something like that. So it's not something to go for a restaurant. But when we, when I did my league and uh, we opened it in a very nice location, it was a post-war, just the war was finishing. And the location is near to Armenian community, but near to downtown where it was no man's land. It was really a location where I was the first one to remove all the uh, war-related uh, damages. And uh, every time I wanted to explain someone what is the location, I said uh, we, we used to tell Tutat Tamis, uh, I mean, like, borderline, okay? It's the borderline between the Christian and uh, Muslim parties. It was the no-man's land. The, my Rik's location, mm -hmm. it was the no-man's land. So um, everybody was daring to come, and it took some time. To start to uh, to my league to 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 pick up what uh, what year was it? Two thousand three, July fourteen, two thousand three. It was the opening. So so going back after graduating from university, you said you were selling insurance door to door. What did you do in between that time and opening up my league? Were you selling insurance full time, or or did you have other endeavors and projects that you worked on? No, I was I was mainly in the insurance business. I grown I grown with my company, and uh, what I've done is uh, uh, insurance. I started with a hotel. It was the first hotel that was building in Lebanon, and I accidentally find a sales manager there, and I started there to uh, uh, to start to pitch for the insurance. And it was the first hotel that I took, and back then it was the starting point for me there. And um, this is this is where everything started because it was like small insurances and everything. But when I started with the Intercontinental in uh, Beirut, uh, there was only a hundred uh, employees uh, business. And when they were going bigger, there was a Phoenicia hotel. It was one thousand two hundred employees, and this is where they challenged me. They said, "You know, we love you. We are you are a good broker, but." Now we need a company, we need uh, to work with someone bigger, someone who has a fund and who has a, a company and we, we can rely on. This is where I challenged them. I said, okay, give me uh, one month. I went and I opened my brokerage firm as company because I was an, as an agent, small agent. And I took that hotel until today, I am the consultant and broker of that hotel. And from that hotel, I started to take the whole hotels and all the international hotels I am their consultant in Lebanon and sometimes in uh, UAE and uh, in the era. But this is where it started. I mean, like it was a challenge for me and uh, I took that challenge and I wanted to try. And this is where I started for, from the insurance insurance basis. And till now I have, um, now I have a lot of work because of the blast. I have 722 cases that we need to see.
You mentioned your father had a tailor shop. How much of him running his own business impacted you to want to become an entrepreneur? Was it was entrepreneurship a common thing around you, or you know, were there a lot of people starting businesses, or was it a little bit more rare to find? I am um, very fond of my father, and I uh, he did a lot in he did he teach me a lot. He taught me a lot. Um, I give you small examples. Uh, I was in the scouts and uh, we were in a camping and they asked uh, for balut. I don't know how do you say balut. Uh, uh, sort of plant. Sort of. <laughs> okay. Is it like gum? Uh, uh, no, it's like, um, like uh, it's very um, bitter. It's uh, the, the, the tree is uh, a lot of um, bark. bark. Yeah. Um, and we were in a camping zone where it was all pine trees. So when there is pine trees, there is not the balut trees. It can't go together. Uh, so I was, I think, 12, 12 or 13 years old when our captain said, okay, we will be splitting everybody with its own team. will go and bring me one balut, one pine, and one uh, I don't know what. So when we went out, after half an hour, my leader gave up. Okay, said, there is no balut. We're going back with the pine and the other. I said, no way. They want this. We will bring this. So I fought with my leader and I left alone. I came back to the camping area four hours and a half. You, you can imagine, okay, how the panic is there. Where is Aline? They're searching and everything. And I was shocked when my first time in my life, someone asked for something and I bring that. Okay, I brought the balut and I was punished because I came late, because I didn't hear my uh, leader. When I came back to, uh, from the camping and I told my father about it, he said, if you think that in your life when you do something, people will applause you, you're completely wrong. So if you're waiting for the applause of people, you will never do something. So do whatever you want and don't hear what they're saying. Because some people will applause you, some people will hurt you, and some people will try to bring you down. So as long as you're convinced of what you're doing, just continue. And this is really one of, one of the hardest lessons and one of the most, pro most important lessons for me because every time I wanted to do something, like the Armenian restaurant, uh, anything that I want to do, either they tell me, they tell me you're, you're, you're crazy, either they tell me you will never make it. Now I've learned that as long as they're telling me this, that means I'm on the right path. The minute they tell me, oh, yes, good thinking, I sit and I think about it because something is wrong. If they tell me it's a good thinking, that means there's something fishy inside. This is, this is, my, <laughs> this is my motto right now. I'm like, this, is, uh, my, this is how I take the temperature of my decisions. Uh, and um, I took a lot of my father's... Um, passion about what he do. Uh, he, he loved what he do he does. And I was um, amazed because every time he used to talk about his suit or someone who came and something, he used to talk about it as if it's a, it's a diamond or as if it's a, you know, uh, and every time this is what I've learned from him, what I took from him especially. And I took from him that whenever you want to sleep, as long as your conscience is clear, you're okay. Just, this is your thing. You can sleep. Your conscience is clear. Continue. 
So um, entrepreneurial, it was very difficult for my father because every time he started a place, war started his first place. He took, I, I remember I was very young. He took loans and he started his first shop and it was burned at the first war of Lebanon. I saw my father so many times um, watching the bombardation and uh, the, the news at TV. And I was very happy that the second day there is no school. But I remember his face was as like, what I will do, how I will make it. I remember this look, but I was too young to understand. And I was very happy that the second day there was no school, you know. And uh, today I am facing almost the same things that he faced. Uh, after I'm 51 years old, after 18 years of my week, I lost everything with this explosion. I lost my home. I lost my office. I lost my car. I lost my week. I have five. Still, I have five employees that they are in heavy situation, cannot hear, cannot see, cannot move their hands. And uh, all I can say that I don't even have the luxury to do depression or cry for five seconds because I have 85 families to think of and I have to continue. I have to find ways to work and make it happen. Because I cannot leave this 85 years, 85 families on the street. You know, for those that don't know about, you know, the recent explosion in Lebanon, I want to kind of touch upon that in a few minutes. But before we get to that and talk about that situation and what happened and how, you know, you're dealing with it, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about Maidig. And for those that don't know, and a lot of people won't know, Maidig in Armenian means mother, right? And... You know, you talk about starting Maidig in 2003, you know, you were cooking for your family, you know, back then your father was very proud of the cooking and, you know, clearly something that you were truly passionate about. But, you know, after all those years, you're selling insurance, you're hustling, you're making things happen. Why did you decide, okay, the time is now, I'm going to open this restaurant, this is what I'm going to do. Talk to us about the early days of the restaurant. When I, I told you it was the, my father's dream, so I had always that in my mind, okay? Uh, I've done a year, just one year before opening my week, I've done all the financials and I've done the study and I went to the bank to take a loan. Uh, there's another problem in Lebanon or in the Middle East that a woman alone cannot take a loan. It has to be signed back by her father, her brother, her husband, a man, and not a woman. So I needed around $20,000. And because I was a broker, I, was not, I didn't have a fixed salary. It was on commission. Okay, so I don't have a proper dossier. My father is not here. I'm not married. My, father, my brother is in the state and I had another brother and I refused to have someone to sign for me. I was fighting with the bank. But, of course, I couldn't do anything. Uh, the second year, I had my cousin who didn't have anything and uh, he's, uh, he's kind of an artist. He likes to do uh, things. So I proposed to him to come with me as 50% partner so that uh, there is a man in the company. And uh, it was five minutes only to take the twenty five uh, the twenty five thousand dollars. 
because there were not even uh, it was the same study, and we found a, a very nice location, which is the same location till now. And uh, I, I fell in love with the with the energy of the location, and I took the decision of that one. Every time they asked me about how did you find the location or how did you do the calculation for the location, I just felt. I just felt it. I can't say it's... I, I didn't do any uh, mathematical or uh, strategical thinking. Uh, it was just the location. It's an old Lebanese house that is uh, very much damaged now, but it's an old Lebanese house, and uh, it was beautiful. And this is what um, why I, I, we started there. And after 12 years, my cousin did a problem for me, and I... I, I uh, it's been four years. He thought... He, we fought with each other for four years, and after all, I I bought back back my league. He came in for twenty five thousand guarantee. He came out with two million dollars. This is the price to pay when you are a woman and doing an entrepreneurship in Lebanon. Uh, unfortunately, this is uh, it was a huge lesson for me. Huge. Whenever you want to do a partnership, just make sure you have the right papers. I hope you will never use it. Just put it in the drawer, but do the proper company setup. And never take anything below 51%. This is my rule. <laughs> Nothing. 51, you want it, you want, you don't want it. I'm not interested. Very high price to pay for a lesson. So we started Mayrig at 2003 and this location. It really started very softly. It was the boom year of Lebanon. There was a lot of uh, tourists, a lot of uh, Lebanese coming back, a lot of GCC countries, Arab countries coming. And they fell in love with Mayrig because it was really, I was cooking inside. It was passionate. It was very homey. It wasn't sophisticated. It was simple. It's still simple. I, I don't sophisticate. I like to find the right ingredients. Uh, we invest in the ingredients and the people. This is our motto. I'm like, it is very important because people are, you know, I have, I have employees from the first day. They're still with me, 18 years. Uh, this is very nice uh, ambience. From the second, also second part is that you have to continuous work on them because I don't want them to enter the comfort zone. Once they are in the comfort zone, everything is stopped. And I'm so active in this and I'm so uh, aggressive, so I don't let them sleep in their comfort zone. So I bother them. Uh, but uh, this is how it started. And then uh, people, when I did this, I thought that uh, I've done my part. I realized my father's dream. Thank you very much. Uh, my job is done, Okay. But I didn't know that I'm putting more, uh, more on myself. Like uh, I started to have bigger dream. I started to have, uh, why not introducing the Armenian cuisine for the whole world? Why not going franchising? Why not uh, uh, being a role model for other restaurants to open as uh, Armenian? Like, you know, when the Japanese sushi started, very little started and now invaded the whole uh, universe. Same thing as the pizzas and pastas. Why not our mantu? Why not? Why not our each? Suburek, everything. And this is where, automatically, I started to be in this region, the ambassador of the Armenian culinary uh, 
this own uh, Armenian restaurant, Armenian history of the uh, food and stuff. I did my book, Armenian Cuisine. Now I have my YouTube uh, about the Armenian cuisine, Alin Kamakian at uh, YouTube. I had 150 videos uh, for the special de Monte, Subarek, Prince of Kofta, everything that we do at home. And uh, wherever I go, for me, is very important to talk about the Armenian cuisine, the tradition, how our mothers, despite the genocide, they manage to keep this treasure. This is really, and this is why I put Mayrik as mother, because when I wanted in, uh, when I wanted to open the Mayrik, I didn't find any chefs. You know, there is no school for the Armenian cuisine. You go and you pick up your chef and you open the cuisine. So when I... Alin, just as a, as a little bit of a historical lesson, I suppose, for listeners who don't necessarily know as much about the Armenian culture as, as us, you know, you talk about how the cuisine survived even though 1.5 million people died, right? That's something that's, you know, truly phenomenal, that the people died, you know, millions, but their food and their culture lived, and all because of the mothers, right? Tell us about that. I mean, how, right? I assume you've studied this. I assume you've talked to people. What happened that the food and our culture and the music, the art, how did that survive, you know, through all that devastation, how are we still here? How is our food still being eaten? Um, you know, um, my grandma, for example, she was 13 when, the, when her, she lost her family. And when I used to cook with her, I was very little. And she always tell me, I always see, especially during the Herisa and stuff, she always cried. Uh, for her, the smell to cook, everything brings her back to her family. You know, this was the strength of the Armenian mothers that they were rebuilding everything through the taste, through the smell, through the stories that they heard. And one was teaching the other. Even I know, I think you know the story of uh, women in Turkey that now they started to talk that their roots are Armenian. They knew each other on Easter from cooking the chereg, the Armenian chereg on Easter. And this is how everyone knew that she's Armenian, she's Armenian. No one talked about it, but they had like a comfort zone to come to each other to put this chereg together. The same thing in Lebanon. Uh, every mother, now grandmother, okay, rebuilt by memory, rebuilt by smell, rebuilt by... The, the 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 food, the taste, and everything, just for them to be their, their comfort zone, their bubble, to feel that they are with their families. And this is how they kept our stories, our uh, tradition. And we know very well that the Armenian diaspora, what kept the Armenian diaspora is, yes, the language, but more is the culture and tradition. This is what brings back the land. Usually you have a land and you build on the tradition. We, unfortunately, we were deported, and this is where we built the culture. The, the family built the culture, the language, the stories, and everybody grown up on heavyweight story. And like when I went to nowadays called Turkey, all the Armenian regions where the genocide arrived because I wanted to talk about 
the food in my book, but I wanted to see the origin. Why are we doing the subarak with white cheese and not yellow cheese? Well, you know, those things I wanted to see because you need to see the land. And I backpacked for one month and I went to Turkey. This was my shock because I thought that I will find Armenians. I thought that someone will tell me stories. Even like what, six years ago, it was a huge taboo to talk about, to say that I am an Armenian. I find a lot of Kurdish. Everyone used to tell me, go to this. His grandpa was Armenian. Go to this one. His grandpa was Armenian. And you still find everything. And this is where I understand that what, you, what your land give and how you cook. This is what, uh, what the book was. And today, the Turkish people are having this land and having this, uh, this eggplant, the pepper, the fistak and everything. But they don't have the Armenian um, delicatessen for cooking. You know, it needs, it needs passion. The touch. The touch, you know. You can eat the subarak of Turkish. Anyway, subarak, monta, all the names are in Turkish because it was forbidden back then to talk in Armenian, okay? And this is why I insisted on writing subarak in my menu, monta in my menu. And every waiter explained that back then was forbidden for Armenian to talk in Armenian. This is why the names are in Turkish, because they used to cut their tongue. And this is how, for me, I'm telling the story to a nice food, but everybody is talking about it. A lot of people didn't know about the genocide or how harsh it was, because we have so many catastrophes per day that we forget what happened before. So this is, for me, my way of telling the Armenian story, my way of telling my grandpa's story, my father's story, everybody's story, through food. Because no one today wants to read genocide books because we have enough on our plate. But if you're having a nice glass of wine with a nice food and you know why it was called Monta, your favorite dish, it, you will never forget. It will always bring about that this was, this is, the name is Turkish because now they tell them this, is, this food is Turkish. If it's Turkish, why the Armenian makes it better? As simple as that. I don't want to go into story. Just tell, put the Turkish turkey monta and an Armenian monta. Put a Turkish subarak and an Armenian subarak and blindly taste it and decide which one is better. I challenge you for that. Here you are, you start an Armenian restaurant in Lebanon. How does it go from being, you know, a small restaurant to now being a staple? It's like, if you go to Beirut, you have to go to Myrik. How does that happen? I, it was funny how it started because when you open an Armenian restaurant, usually you think that Armenian will come. You, you think that you're cater for the, that community. It was completely the opposite. When I started, because the location was in the heart of Beirut. So uh, non-Armenian, let me put it, I don't want to say Lebanese because Armenian and Lebanese here. Okay, non-Armenian started to come and they started afterwards bringing their Armenian friends to so hmm. it, it started like that. I don't know how. Okay. And plus, it was the time where a lot of Arabs, GCC country, were visiting. And they like a lot of uh, this style of uh, meze style, different spices. And uh, so they started to love. Mayrik has now uh, her bigger, our bigger restaurant is in Saudi Arabia. We have a 400 seat restaurant in Saudi Arabia. Now we just opened wow. Bachi. With the COVID, we have a bachig of 1,000 seats. 
so this is, and imagine we are in Maldives, in Four Seasons Maldives. So people who loves it is taking in it, calling us to take the franchise to open it. So it started by non-Armenians. What the Armenian taught me that since they love to do manta and uh, subarag and everything, and it's time consuming, they taught me the frozen part of the Maidi. We have a boutique that where you can come on and buy the manta, subarag, kofta, all Armenian specialties. This where Armenian friends were telling, you know, I want to do monta, but you know how Armenians do monta. We put the monta and we eat the monta. Like, <laughs> uh, <but laughs> so can you give me a, a monta because I don't have time to do it at home? So this is how I started to do the uh, catering or the frozen items of my day. Now in Lebanon, you find in all grab and go uh, supermarkets on deliveries, you find the first thing is monta is number one selling item, the monta. Uh, so you have Mayrik Monta, and now there is like three, four companies doing it. And I'm very proud. You go to a Arme- uh, Lebanese restaurant and you see Armenian Monta, Armenian Sujuk, Armenian Ich, Armenian Fishna Kebab. They, they started to incorporate our tradition into their uh, menu. What more compliment can I get than this? I'm like, this is for me one of the best. They do, they, sometimes they tell me, you're not pissed they're putting Monta in their food. Or uh, another Armenian restaurant open. I said, no, they, they are helping me realizing my dream because I cannot put in all the world an Armenian restaurant in my I cannot do it by myself. So by all I ask them is copyright. If you need, this is my book, just don't downgrade the Armenian cuisine. I am ready to train. My chefs are ready to train. You're not a competitor. You're a fellow. You're helping me to grow the Armenian cuisine. Everyone will take their own part. Every, every restaurant you go, it has its own spirit. There are millions of sushi restaurants, millions of pizza restaurants. That doesn't mean one will take the other's place. The more we are, the stronger we are. This is, for me, it's very important. My aim is to put the Armenian cuisine on the highest. On the, whenever you Google Armenian cuisine, you have, you have to have billions of restaurants. Everybody should know about the Monte. Everybody should know about the Ich. Everybody should taste the Subaran. I'm like, why not? And uh, hopefully one day you will go to a supermarket, you will have everything on that. This is my aim. I'm like, I want to really try uh, to, to, to spread. If I was afraid of the recipes, I wouldn't do a book. I wouldn't do a, a, Google, uh, right. a Google, YouTube. For me is, please just, whenever you're going to do it, just do it right. If you have any question, you want any recipes, email me and I'll give you anything. Just do it the right way. Do it better than I'm doing. That's all what I wish. You know, Alin, there's two great lessons in what you're talking about. Well, there's a lot of great lessons, but the two that I really took away was one, that you were very, and you still are, very focused on your mission, right? From day one, you know, your mission was, I want to make my father's dreams come true and spread the Armenian cuisine, right? That's always been your mission. So that leads into the second point, which is if you are so strong in your mission, then the competition shouldn't matter. If anything, the competition is going to make you better, right? If other people are copying you, it means you're probably doing something right. And usually at the end of the day, people know, okay, I probably had Manta at Mairik first, right? And now this person is doing it. You know, Ali knew what she was doing, even though she was crazy back then. 
something was something was right. Something was going on. She was right, right? So I think it's just a great lesson to people that are so convinced and have a conviction that they want to do something. Don't be afraid of competition. Don't be afraid of the people that are telling you, oh, there's already enough of that. Do it better, right? That's the message you said. Do it better than me. But don't forget that I was one of the first people that did it. You know, say thank you or, you know, show some level of appreciation, whatever it is, but just just do it. And I think that that's a huge entrepreneurial lesson uh, for those that are listening and for those that will share this message. And, you know, we thank you for that. Um, and so, you know, obviously you have all these Mighties now, you know, you have a Mighty in Armenia, you have another restaurant, Bachig in Lebanon. How do you, and you know, you talk about the Maldives and Saudi Arabia as the franchises. How do you manage this entire like hospitality empire? Um, just one point before, uh, for the competition. Uh, I think competition is my fuel. The more they copy, the more they push me to create something new. And um, the more I'm thankful to them. If I'm going onwards is because someone is pushing me. I have to run so, so that the rest can copy a lot, you know. They're making me run. This is my fuel, basically. And I love this. I love the challenge. And I love to... Uh, to create myself again and again and again. I, you have to disrupt yourself. Otherwise, if someone else disrupts you, you're too late already. If you're not disrupting yourself daily, is uh, you're, you're already uh, late. You have to run so that other people can walk. So uh, for me, this is it. I, I, uh, I, have to, I have to disrupt myself. And this is uh, one of the... One of the challenges, uh, and this is why all my team, my management team, are the team that I fight with them every day. If I find someone who's telling me, yes, you're right, he's fired. He has to fight me. He has to tell me that I'm wrong so that we can come up with something. And like, he has to push me, he or she. Okay, so uh, for how to run a... a hospitality business uh, with the franchise. Uh, one thing, um, it's all about your team, people. For me, people is very important. People are everything. Uh, if, you know, you have to find passionate people. You have to find people that loves what they're doing. Uh, technicality, ways can be taught. Uh, we have a lot of trainings. We, we go to, we follow a lot of things that going, it's going onwards. Now with the Corona, for example, we see what's going on in other countries. Uh, and we try to find a way to manage. And here is a, a bit special. Lebanon is a bit special country. Uh, but in this region, we are known, uh, especially in the GCC, we are very, very much known. So uh, we follow this. But people, uh, you know, I trust my team more than I trust myself. Uh, if I can sleep sometimes or if I can take vacation sometimes, it's because I have a team that uh, I'm in love with them. You know, like they are my everything. And uh, during the blast, we were having um, a management meeting and five of them are very heavily wounded. So um, 
this is my, uh, from the, the minute of the blast till today, I didn't have a one second for me because I don't, I cannot. I have to take care of the management who was wounded. The one who's coming out of the hospital is coming directly to work. Imagine the power of this team. So, you know, you keep talking about the blast and uh, for those that haven't been following world news um, or, you know, if in your part of the world this hasn't been covered, uh, I think in early August, was it August 3rd? Yes, 4th of August at 6th. 4th of August, yeah. So it might have been like the 3rd in the United States or something like that, but maybe the 4th, I don't remember. Uh, There was a massive explosion in downtown Beirut by the port. Um, And it, you know, it pretty much you know, killed hundreds of people, if not thousands at this point, injured thousands more. It, you know, destroyed homes, businesses. I mean, just everything, right? So, Alin, talk to us a little bit about that. I know it's a difficult conversation. I know it's tough. But being an entrepreneur, you know, there are a lot of challenges. There's challenges like this one that are completely unforeseen. You would have never seen this coming, right? So talk to us about the blast and then, the effects of that and we'll kind of go into what's happening now, but talk to us about what happened. Okay. For the challenges, let me put when it happens. So Lebanon is going through uh, uh, economical challenges. Uh, you had the deterioration of the money, dollar, dollar things. You had the bank, uh, almost bankrupt. You have the revolution that started in Lebanon so there are a lot of challenges already economically, plus the COVID, and then the blast came. The blast is in the heart of Beirut, so uh, everything that happens is here. The core of the businesses, the core of the nightlife, the co- everything is here. Uh, my rig is uh, 500 meters from the blast, and there's nothing between us. There's a highway and a port. We had... Uh, best location <laughs> and uh, the blast came in and our offices is just next to it I have a terrace so we were having a management meeting at my office and the terrace I went out to take a photo because it was one small blast and then the big blast came in so when the small blast came in I called the firefighting I said there is a fire here that we know it and when the car of the firefighters started to arrive or almost there, I was filming it and the blast came. It's number three blast in the whole world. It's the biggest third blast in the whole world. And I was only 500. Like of all history. Of all history. Okay. I was 500, three seconds, bird fly away. By being, sorry for the word, stupid enough to go out and to take a photo saved my life. Because in front of me, there was a water barrel that protected me of the shock. And my team was in my office and they got all the glasses, all the blasts. And, you know, the pen, the the pen was in the wall. Like it it was all glasses, uh, uh, frames, uh, the office, everything is, because of the uh, the heaviness of the explosion, it was everything blast. So uh, my financial controller lost his eyes. 
my uh, my operation manager uh, is half broken. My assistant is me and my assistant are half deaf. Uh, my accountant lost the use of his hands. I'm uh, we're really bad. I mean, like uh, when I came in from the the terrace. The first one I saw it was my financial manager and I started to work. You know, being a scout, being uh, having the first aid training helped me to save my my, my, my managers. I worked on my financial controller between CPR. I stopped his bleeding. I find a broken door. I put him on it and I came down three floors. The stairs were all felt with uh, all the uh, full ceiling, the, the frames, everything. You cannot walk. It was so difficult. I thought that the blast was in our office. It was that big. So when I said, when I'm down, there is my rig team will help me. And I didn't know that when I'm down, I will see, uh, you know, it's a scenery where in the worst war movie, you didn't see it in Hollywood films. Everything was, first of all, dust, everything broken. The trees were out of their 100-year-old trees is out of their roots and blown. The cars are uh, flight. The, half of the buildings are down. Only you, you see only people with blood carrying other people, running like lost chicken. You cannot take a car to go to a, to a hospital. I didn't even manage to understand that the nearest hospital was also damaged, you know. For you, a hospital is a safe place. So I put uh, my financial controller, I find a motorcycle guy, and I begged him to take him to the hospital. I find a fabric on the street. I put him with the fabric on the motorcycle and send him. And I start to send my people to hospital. And my league team were out also all wounded. And we had uh, 12 customers also all wounded. I was lucky not to have a casualty. But from... The second of the explosion till today, uh, we're working 24 hours, uh, taking, with, during the blast, you take decisions, you know, like, this I can save, this is, no, this one is more older, I will go for the younger to save. You take decisions that you don't have the right to take, but you don't have the choice. You cannot help everyone. You have to take a decision whom you have to help. You're limited you don't have you don't have phone you don't have car you don't have anything you just have to find ways to to who would have put a guy that's all broken on a motorcycle with with a fabric on the guy who's driving and like i don't know who's driving i trusted an unknown man i don't have a choice you don't since that day i don't neither have the luxury nor the time to think of a depression or to think of uh, giving up, you can't. You don't have the choice. From where you have the strength or from where you have uh, this energy to continue, I don't know. But something is very important. You have to take care of yourself. And like I do my meditation. I do my stretching. I eat correctly. Because I need to take care of myself to be able to take the right decision to be able to continue on it. I have 
my my right hands are in the hospitals, and I, I and I have let's say the restaurant people, the chefs, but my right hands of strategic decision making, I don't have it. Uh, they have a bigger problem to take care of, and the problem in this is so big that you can't even say that you are hurt or you are in pain. You cannot, because the one, if you hear the other, he's in more in pain. He's, he has bigger problem. He lost someone he loves. He lost his mom. He lost his kids. You know, you can't even talk about it and say, I'm in pain. I lost everything materially. And all I'm saying, thank God I'm alive. My team is alive. I'm 51 years old and I have nothing. I worked all my life. And I have nothing. And all, my, all I'm doing is rebuilding the houses of my employees and feeding people that are in need. We're feeding 2,500 meals per day. I'm feeding, I'm, I'm working in Bachi kitchen, in the kitchen. We close it. We did an emergency uh, place. The second floor is all my employees who, who's living, who lost their houses. And then whoever can work is working. You call it group therapy. You call it giving as a healing. You call it, you know, it's all about taking right now fast decision. You are in the middle of the storm. All you need to take care of is stay alive and then we'll see. You cannot decide you will swim this side or this side. You're in the middle of the storm. All you can say is just breathe and try to stay alive and then we'll see. This is where I am right now. Just it's the third week. And we're just staying alive. And and being in the middle of this devastating situation, given you know your insurance background and knowledge in that regard, how do you even begin to to rebuild not only Myrig and what you've built there, but also you know the greater city as a whole? I know I know it's only been a few weeks, and we've been reading about all the amazing work that you've been doing in terms of you know giving back and helping those in need. But I'm just curious on a larger scale, what does the next step look like? As always, unfortunately, Lebanese people never relied on their government, okay? We do not have a government. Imagine three days and no one came. We cleaned, volunteers cleaned everything. And after the four days, the army came in. Why? I don't know. I'm like, uh, Lebanese people, unfortunately, everybody tells you're resilient, you're courageous, you know how to rebuild. Honestly, we had enough of this world. But that's true. Third day, the whole street was clean, even cleaner than before. All by only volunteer people. Everybody like took a broom and came down. Uh, now, rebuilding is much more of uh, longer term. But Lebanon is... Um, has a very strong diaspora community, like Armenians. The diaspora is very strong. And uh, the only thing that we're waiting is a little bit of change in our thinking of how to make a government. Uh, I think once there is a small change, because this government uh, just gave their res resignation, uh, they're gonna build another government, we don't have a lot of hope, but just a small change, small, a new name will give a lot of hope. Everything will be built based on 
the Lebanese resilience, the Lebanese diaspora, and the help of the uh, other communities. It's, I think, with my experience, within three years, everything will be built. I give another week, and a lot of uh, offices and uh, small shops will be reopened. Don't forget, it's the core of Beirut. A lot of people living there. Uh, some people will never come back, and some people will... Uh, it's their home. My home is there. I need to come back. Uh, I'm living now with my mom. Remember the, the old days at what time you're coming back? <laughs> this is my situation now. <laughs> when I out, and like, what time you're coming? Do you want, what do you want to eat? You know, this is, this is the days. I love this with my mom, but this is the situation. Going back to this is like, a, oh, mom. I don't know what time I will come back. So, uh, <laughs> it would, I give three years uh, for all the ambience to come back. Right now, what we're working is uh, to redo for two years another location, like where is Maidik? We are five, six restaurata there. Uh, I, I, with my insurance connection and with my I'm an angel investor also in uh, women's uh, uh, investment field. So what I'm trying to do is to put two together to create a location and to make these people rise again. Because always I say, by rising the community, you rise. You know, if I want to go and do only my league, I will never be able to come back. I have to think of a bigger location. I've done, uh, my friends in the state done... Uh, Go fund me, and this is helping me to be able to rebuild. First of all, I've done uh, all the employees' apartment. They uh, we have thirty employees without apartment. Now we still have five to redo. The second uh, we're doing is we're rebuilding the kitchen of Mayrik because what I'm intending to do is rebuild the kitchen, the toilet, and the terrace. We still have two months of no rain in Lebanon, so if I want to do Mayrik all over. It needs a lot of money. I cannot have it today. So for me, is Ali, one thing you mentioned was, you know... The terrace, sorry. No worries. One thing you mentioned was beyond just this explosion, you have a massive economic struggle. You have coronavirus. And, you know, you still have ongoing political strife. You have religious strife, etc. There's all these problems. There's all these challenges. I mean, obviously, the situation just made matters absolutely impossible and just, I mean, horrifying. But even if you were to open Mighty, I mean, like, are the people, is the community ready to come back? I mean, are do they even have the money to pay for the food? I mean, what wh- what is it like? I mean, I can't imagine because here in America, here we're we're in Los Angeles. Yes, you have the pandemic, but people still have their jobs for the most part you know things are okay you can't even compare it to beirut in lebanon so what is that like because when we hear stories it doesn't look good you know it doesn't sound good so i'm just curious to hear from you you know even if things were to get better the next few months or a year how are the people doing right like how's the how are the people of beirut doing okay uh, people as you said it's uh, already the the poor the poverty rose fifty percent in Lebanon before the explosion. 
um, lo a lot of people lost their job. And then the coronavirus came in. So again, a lot of uh, problems. And we call it in French, just the cherry on top. The explosion happened. Uh, I hope this is the end. And <laughs> I hope there's nothing bigger coming. Um, it's going to be, even if I open, this is what we're saying. That's why I'm telling, we're going to open the terrace. The terrace takes around 30 people maximum. What we're doing in the kitchen is a minimum because today to do a re-kitchen is the most expensive part. Um, who will be coming is some resilient Lebanese that we're not leaving this area. It's going to be a bit of emotional. I'm not expecting high uh, average check. I'm expecting more of uh, emotional uh, compression and people support. coming support. Uh, don't forget also that the location is not nice. And like, if you are, I was there at 8.30 at night, I was afraid. It's like a, I don't know, a, a, a apocalypse. Ghost town. Ghost town. So what we're trying to put some lighting trees just to make this street a bit more appetizing. Uh, and the rest is, uh, you know, we have a lot of journalists we have a lot of loss adjusters, insurance loss adjusters. These are the tourists right now, uh, let's say, <laughs> unfortunately. It's August, is the core of the tourism. It's the core of the big weddings. Uh, and during the, the, during the explosion, there was three, four weddings going on. So this is, uh, you cannot say who's going to come. What you need to do is make the change. Because if you don't make the change, it's not about opening a restaurant. It's about creating an ambience. It's about making a change. It's about being there, re refusing to live, refusing to give up. This is it when you open the terrace of my rig. Because I cannot tell you the, the, the inside of my rig. It's gone. I'm like, everything is gone. There is nothing. I'm like, everything is broken. To rebuild this, I need minimum three months. I need minimum $400,000, $500,000. I cannot bring it today. What I'm doing is really the minimum of the minimum to tell that we are here, to tell that we're not going, to tell that we are resilient, to tell that I need to do this because I need to sustain the business to be able to pay the salaries of the employees. The most dangerous part right now is nobody is able to pay salaries. And by not paying salaries today, you're killing me, 85 family. How There is no way, there is no social security, there is no government, there is nothing. So you have to take care of these and how to take care of these and how long I can take care of this. This is the challenge. For me, this is the biggest challenge. It's divided between the medical of my management team so that I have, uh, I hopefully I can save an eye or save an ear. Imagine where I am and how to sustain the business to be able to go. So anything they want, wherever they want, I'm ready to go just to be able to sustain these, uh, these people. And the timing where even my franchisee in Armenia and Saudi and everything are very badly hit with COVID. So I cannot rely on them to have uh, to, to get some royalties, something. So, you know, 
When I thought about the franchising, I said, because I thought about it uh, on the first explosion of the Prime Minister Hariri in 2005. So I said, okay, Lebanon is very good, but I need to have something outside. So in case here there is revolution, war, explosion, something, I have an income from outside to sustain the inside. Right. Okay, not even this strategy works today. So you have to create something new. So we created online deliveries. We create. We are now creating uh, what we can sell outside because you need to have a fresh dollars. So challenges about challenges about challenges. The only way you create something is where, whenever you have a need. It's it's always like this. There is a need automatically. The thing will come. Uh, so this is what we're working on. It. We, we. What's our need? We need to create something outside. We need to have fresh money. We need to keep our employees. This is what we're working right now. And today, a lot of people are helping us, especially with the food donation that we're receiving to be able to cook for the others. At least I'm keeping my team busy, so that I can. One thing is off my back to to be able to continue something else. Ali, when we first spoke, I believe it was. I think it was like a few days after the explosion. And after you kind of gave me an overview, I said, you're like the Armenian Jose Andres. And then a couple of days later or something, suddenly Jose Andres appears in Lebanon or in Beirut. Uh, or maybe the next day, I can't remember when it was. I mean, how did that happen? I mean, I know we know Jose Andres and we've interviewed a good friend of his in the past. I don't know if you'll know him, Robert Ager. He was the, he was the head of the Los Angeles uh, World Kitchen or what was it called? LA, LA Kitchen. Kitchen. LA Kitchen. And he's good friends with Jose. And, you know, he just kind of gave us this lesson of the power of food, right? And you talk about it and the power of food to bring people together, the power of food to make memories, the power of food to continue culture. And to me, that's just phenomenal, right? To me, it's just, it's the only thing that I believe is a true unifying force. You know, there's music, there's art, there's, but there's nothing like food, right? And Jose Andres, and I think yourself have done an excellent job of that. So talk to us about, you know, what happened when Jose came and what have you guys been working on? So when, um, how it started is that the second day, the team that uh, was not at the explosion place came and helped us to start to clean, maybe. Around at 4, 4.30, uh, we were hungry. You know, we were working all day. And mm, this is the first time that I realized that I lost my restaurant. Because I'm in my rig, I don't have water, I don't have food. Not for me, not for the others. So there was a, a Caritas uh, giving sandwiches. So my people took the sandwiches. This is where my first time I had tears in my eyes because it was one of the most difficult scene in my rig. Someone is giving me food to survive. It was really, for me, it was the point where I realized that everything is gone. So I asked my chef in the kitchen of uh, the central kitchen of Bachik, send us some food tomorrow because we cannot send us some sandwiches. So in the morning, when the volunteers started to come, I called him, I said, Edi, send around 100 sandwiches because there is a lot of uh, volunteers. I cannot eat in front of someone and I'm not, eat, I'm not giving food. And the second day was 200. And the third day was 300. I was like, okay. And the fourth day, Jose Andres find me. 
the, his manager Sam was in Lebanon, and they were like seeing around. And they came to me and they said, "You are distributing food." I heard. I said, "Yes." Said we want to cooperate with you. So we came to the kitchen. I said, "Said you have a nice kitchen. We can change it a bit." So what's the idea? I said we want to feed around ten thousand people. I said, "Okay, I can change it to a community kitchen and put uh, and get the volunteer of the scouts to help us, you know, roll it, cut it. The kitchen will work, but we need volunteers." And this is how we started. He said, "You can do five hundred." I said, "Yes, I can do five hundred." And then he said, "But I'm not finding crazy people enough. So can you do more?" I said, "I can do until three thousand." This is where we started to do two thousand five hundred. And uh, you know, the nice thing about this is that I learned a lot from their experience because how they come, how they take the shock. And how they talk to the people and how they do. So it was a learning curve for me, and it was honestly it was the best therapy because I was looking for group therapy for my people. You have different mentalities, different categories, different languages because I have Armenian mother that doesn't understand any language, and here it was everybody cooking, everybody like cleaning vegetables, talking to each other. What happened to her? What happened to her? And it was their ter- the therapy was between us. I cannot tell you. Maybe this is not the the end result, but the beginning. People started to see me on Instagram, and volunteers started to to rain. You know, like a lot of people because people wants to do something because it is a therapy for them also. When you are giving, it's this. So with Jose, uh, this is, and then Jose came into Lebanon. It was the first time Jose comes to Lebanon, and it was the longest stay when he goes to a catastrophe place. He was amazed of the resilience of Lebanese, and he was then telling me, "You are wounded and you are working." I said, "Yes." I said, "Why?" I said, "I'm doing a therapy." I said, "Okay, good therapy. Come." So we, this is how we started it, and I introduced to to him to Armenian cuisine. I cooked for him Monte and Suberek. I said. I know you're here for catastrophe, but you cannot come in and not understanding the Armenian. And this is where we started to fight. He said, yes, but Montan Subarak are Turkish. I said, no, eat it. And if you like it more, then this is Armenian. But this is the story. And this is where I started to say that I'm not here only for the catastrophe. I'm here <laughs> to also understand the Armenian community. So this is uh, with the, with Jose was uh, very, but Honestly, I learned a lot, and what what we're working right now is to continue to continue this community kitchen because uh, there is a big need, and uh, we need to cover this need until things are better. Did Jose prefer your manta and subareg or the Turkish one? I had a I filmed him on this. Said, say it, accept it, that that is better. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I love it. And, you know, we not only appreciate your time, but I think what you're doing right now, you know, because of this situation is just an incredible lesson in resilience, in perseverance, in sticking to your mission even in the worst of times 
And I can't, I could confidently say that no entrepreneur, no business owner has gone through this level of struggle or this level of challenge. Even, and, and look, there are levels to these challenges. You lose money, you lose people, you lose business. All of those things happen. They're expected. But this, this was one of those situations where it was the perfect storm between an economic crisis, a pandemic, and then a massive explosion. I mean, what do you do? There's really no answer. And, you know, when we first spoke, I remember you said, you know, in a time like this, there's nothing, you don't plan. You just keep going. You just keep doing something. And then, you know, hopefully it just works out. And that's the perfect story of entrepreneurship. And, you know, I just hope that whoever's listening, whether they're a business owner, whether they're, you know, they just enjoy food, whether they just enjoy hearing me and Pat talk, that they keep in mind that even in the worst of times in their life, there's always a way out, right? Giving up shouldn't be an option. Whether you're fighting a pandemic, whether you're fighting your boss, whether you're fighting your spouse, whatever it is, just don't give up. Just look for the right answer, do good, and then just stick to the goal, right? And I don't know, it's just unbelievable to even just speak to you in this time because I've just never heard of anything like this. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. Thank you. If I add on what you're saying, one more word uh, for, this, for this situation. I don't know if I can summarize it. I don't think so. But uh, one thing I find is that do whatever it takes because they say when you are drowning, don't give your hand to the devil. Well, it's wrong. You give your hand to anything because you don't know who's the devil. <laughs> That's the only thing you find, first of all. And second is there is no right or wrong because... I don't know. I started to feed people. I, I came to Jose. I started to, 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 to go hospitals. I find uh, volunteers. You know, there is, there is always something. And the most, most important thing is adaptability. You cannot be... My father used to tell me is which tree is going ha- to handle the biggest uh, wind or biggest hurricane. And I used to find the biggest tree, the heart and everything. Said this one is the first one to be broken because it's so stubborn and so strong. When you are a thin tree and you can come down with the wind and when the wind is up, come up, this is where you can survive. And for me, this is really very important lesson also because when there is a big wind, just go down, be humble, Forget about your ego. Forget about your everything. Just lean down, come down. And whenever the time arrives, you can rise again. So just don't be stubborn. Adapt to every situation. This is, for me, what I'm trying to follow. Thank you for your time, and thank you for giving me the chance to be on your podcast. And I wish you all the best of luck. Anytime. It was was our honor, and... Uh, you know, I, I haven't been to Armenia or Beirut, and I've heard incredible things about you and your food. And I eat Subareg and Manta here in L.A., but I can't imagine it's anything like yours. So, uh, you know, hopefully as things get better in the world with this pandemic, you know, we can both get out there and, you know, we'll visit you in person. And, you know, if we need to help you out, we'll help you out and we'll definitely eat your food and we'll cook with you as well. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, and can continue to inspire all of us. Maybe I come to you. 
if you cannot come to me, maybe oh, maybe come, come to come to Welcome. Thank you Yalla. very much. It was great yeah. talking to you. Bye bye. Bye bye.